Well, good morning, Abundant Life. It's great to be with you here today once again. Boy, having been at uh, our church for almost 30 years makes me feel kind of old, but I want you to know I started there when I was 12, so I'm not as old as you think. But uh, it's great to be with you here on Memorial Day weekend, a great weekend where we have the opportunity to remember those men and women who gave their lives for our country and for our freedom. And so this is a great time for us to just remember them and give thanks for them. You know, one of the big challenges that is facing companies and churches today is the challenge of succession. Because many baby boomers, like myself, are sort of like thinking about retirement someday, the question naturally arises, who is going to take their place? Who will succeed them? And so I have a baton here, and this baton actually represents a critical moment in a relay race where the exchange takes place and one runner ends his part in the race and the other runner begins his part in the race. And if you don't get the exchange right, then the race is always lost. And you know, the Bible is actually full of succession stories where the baton is passed. Sometimes it's done well, and other times it's rather messy. Moses, for example, spent years grooming Joshua to be his successor. And so when the time came for that baton to be passed and Moses had died, it went off perfectly. Joshua didn't skip a beat. On the other hand, King Saul fought God's choice of David to succeed him as king. And you might say that Saul held on to the baton too long. And that was a very messy exchange. The prime example is Jesus. Jesus spent three years uh, preparing and training his disciples to carry on the mission. And then he passed the baton on to them, calling them to make disciples as well. One of those disciples, of course, was the Apostle Paul. And today I want us to consider how the Apostle Paul actually passed the baton to a young disciple named Timothy. When Paul arrived in Rome towards the end of his ministry, he spent about two years in what was called house arrest, awaiting trial. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to Paul after that. Tradition says Paul was actually acquitted in A.D. 62. He went to Spain and he ministered for a while, but then he was rearrested, brought back to Rome, and somewhere between two to five years later, Paul was executed under the persecutions of Nero. Now, what we do know is that during that time, Paul wrote some letters, the last of which was to Timothy. 
Paul had met Timothy on his very first missionary journey in a little town called Lystra. Paul had led Timothy to Christ. And then when Paul visited him a few years later, he found that Timothy had matured tremendously in his faith. And not only that, the the leaders in the area spoke very highly of Timothy. So Paul decided to take Timothy with him And Timothy traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys for the next 15 years. Eventually, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to lead the church there. And this was a very tough assignment. Ephesus was a difficult place to do ministry. And Timothy was relatively young. He was timid by nature. And he was prone to physical ailments. But Paul believed that Timothy was crucial to the future of the mission. And so Paul wrote this last letter to him, and it's hard not to see that the baton is being passed to Timothy. If you have a Bible, turn with me today to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. As this baton is being passed, what does Timothy need to know? What does he need to know? That's a very important question. And it's an important question for all of us today. As we look at what Paul says to Timothy, I want you to think about where you are at in this exchange. Are you getting ready in one way or another to pass the baton? Who are you investing in? Are you receiving the baton? How will you run your part of the race? And it is a race. As a matter of fact, later in this very letter, Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that someday? I certainly would. How is it possible? Paul answers that question in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Let me begin by reading verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as day and night I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also." Now, in some ways, this just looks like a regular old greeting that we see often in the Bible. But I want you to notice how Paul mentions Timothy's relationships. And Paul wants Timothy, right at the outset here, to remember the people that have impacted his life. Timothy's father was not a believer. But Paul mentions Timothy's grandmother and his mother. And he's reminded of their sincere faith. So Timothy had a godly heritage. And I believe this should be an encouragement to parents and to grandparents. Maybe you're in a marriage 
where your spouse doesn't share your commitment to Christ. Maybe you wonder if your kids are ever going to get it. Keep planting seeds. Keep praying for them. Keep exposing them to God's word. Continue to be a model of genuine, sincere faith. Be real with your kids. Let them see how your faith makes a difference in your life. And if you're a grandparent, like I am, don't underestimate your influence. Maybe your grandkids are far away. Maybe their parents are far away from God. But you can speak into their lives like no one else. Now, not all of us have this godly heritage. I didn't have it. Many of you didn't have it. But some of you do have it. And you can point to parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles who have invested in you. That is a gift. And you should never take that gift for granted. I got to tell you, I often run into believers who downplay their Christian heritage. It's kind of like they're embarrassed by it. Like if I had a real testimony, you know, it would have been different. But it's a gift. And when you're weary and the race seems long, you can look back to loved ones who've gone before you, they ran well, and you draw strength from how they ran their race. But if you don't have that, You can remember others. Paul also reminds Timothy of the relationship the two of them cultivated. He calls Timothy, you're my dear son in the faith. As Timothy's spiritual father, he constantly remembers him in his prayers. He longs to see him. It would fill him with joy, he says. Paul recalls the tears streaming down his cheeks as they parted ways. And he affirms him. He thanks God for him and for the reality of Jesus at work in his life. You know what? This is a great model for discipleship. How do you disciple someone? What does a spiritual mentor do, actually? Well, look at Paul's example. Besides writing a letter... Paul is faithful in prayer, he is warm in friendship, and he is affirming in speech. And so I would ask you, do you have someone that you are investing in? Do you have a spiritual son or a spiritual daughter? Keep Paul's model in mind. I have been so tremendously blessed by spiritual mentors. The Lord more than made up for my lack of a godly heritage with wonderful mentors. Norm Frankenberger, Paul Roby, Jay Grimstead, Mike Dunkel, Tom Virtue, Ray Stedman, Steve Zeisler, Laren Heath, Jeff Farrar, Haddon Robinson. You don't know them. But I wouldn't be here without them. Those men changed my life. And sometimes when I'm discouraged, and sometimes when the race seems long, I think back to them. I think how they ran their race, and that encourages me to run my race. I would love to see every single person in their church with their own Paul, someone investing in them, and with their own Timothy, someone 
they are investing in. Now, one of the things a mentor does is challenge us. And that's what Paul does next in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So not only would Timothy need to remember the people who had invested in his life, he would also need to rekindle or fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. God had given Timothy a gift. We don't know for sure what gift Paul was talking about. But the fact that it was bestowed by the laying on of hands gives us a clue. When Joshua took over for Moses, Moses laid his hands on him to show he was being set aside for leadership. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries, the leaders of the church at Antioch laid their hands on them. It's clear that this gift has to do with Timothy being set apart as a leader in the church. So at our church, when we appoint an elder, we lay hands on him in our public worship services. Paul wants Timothy to remember the time, the moment, the event where this gift and this calling became a reality for him. Now, not all of us have the same gift that Timothy had, but every single one of us have a gift and every single one of us has a calling. Every single one of us has been given some unique ability designed specifically to build others up in the faith. You combine that gift with what you're deeply passionate about. What makes you pound your fist on the table and you have the makings of a calling. Someone once said that your calling is the place where your heart's deep desire and the world's great need intersect. When you experience that intersection and you add your own spiritual gifting into the mix, you have found your ministry sweet spot. You know you're doing what God created you to do. But sometimes that gets buried Maybe we get discouraged. Maybe we get exhausted. Maybe we just get too busy and distracted. And so that's why Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame or rekindle the gift of God. God's gift, Paul says, is like a fire. Fires, last time I checked, die down unless you tend them. There are times when for whatever reason... We have failed to keep the fire burning. What do you do? You stir up the coals. You fan the flickering flame. But how? I believe what this means is that you choose to step back into the fray. You choose to use that gift which has been barely flickering. Recently, I... Uh, 
I had a road bike. I enjoy riding my bike. I was talking to a brother here this morning that likes to ride as well. But anyway, you know, I had this road bike and I really enjoyed going out for rides, you know. And, and one day my road bike was stolen from my front yard. Man, it was awful. And anyway, so I started, you know, to be thinking about, I've got to get myself a new road bike. I mean, I missed my rides. And so I started to think about a new road bike and dream about a new road bike and covet other people's road bikes. And I started saving and shopping. And then one day, out of the blue, someone gave me a gift certificate for a bike shop to go buy a new road bike. Man, I was so excited. I went right on down there and I bought a road bike and I brought it home. Now, just imagine for a minute, what would it be like if I brought that bike home and put it in my garage and for whatever reason failed to ever take it out for a ride? Now, imagine that. Maybe, you know, maybe I just got too busy. I kind of got out of the routine of riding my bike, so I never took it out. Or maybe I was afraid, you know, like, oh, well, I'm getting kind of old. I don't really have it in me anymore to ride my bike. And so I just left it there. Or maybe I was afraid I'd get in an accident. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just was afraid that if I took it out of the garage, it would get stolen, like my other bike. So what if I just left it in the garage? That would be tragic. And that's what it's like when we don't use the gifts and the calling that God has given to us. So you can understand why Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, fan the flame. Timothy, take the bike out of the garage and go for a ride. Why? Look what he says. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. God has given each of us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not produce timidity. That word, by the way, means fear or cowardice. It means a lack of courage or moral strength. The Holy Spirit of God produces power. He produces the strength to stand up and face whatever it is that is keeping us from fulfilling our call. He also produces, by the way, love. So this power, this strength, is not in service of self. It is in service of others. That's what love is. It's laying your life down. Finally, the Spirit of God produces self-discipline. A better translation of this word, I believe, is a sound mind. It's having control over your thinking. When everything and everyone else is getting unglued, being level-headed, keeps you focused on God and able to persevere. So folks, whatever it is that keeps you from taking the bike out of the garage, the Spirit of God more than makes up for it. So we need to remember those who have impacted our lives. We also need to rekindle our gift, but we also need to know that this will not be easy. There will always be opposition. Timothy's church was rife with conflict, with false teaching. Timothy's critics were many. 
Rome was becoming more and more intolerant of Christians. More and more Christians were being rounded up and thrown into prison. Timothy's mentor awaited execution at Nero's command. It was a tough time to be a Christ follower. So Paul challenges Timothy to suffer for the gospel. Look at verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now the theme of this verse and some of the following verses, as we'll see, is suffering for the gospel. And as Paul talks about this, he says to Timothy, listen, don't be ashamed. Now, Timothy was in a situation where he could avoid a lot of hardship if he backed out of his commitment to Christ because he was ashamed. Shame, by the way, is a very powerful force. We do things to avoid shame, don't we? So Paul mentions three things here that we might be tempted to be ashamed of when it comes to being a follower of Christ. First... He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So we are all called to testify and to bear witness about our Lord. It might be in a classroom where your professor is a hardened atheist who loves to criticize Christians and make them feel like intellectual dwarves. By the way, I had a philosophy professor in college, and uh, his standard response to any Christian was to give them a C in his class. Didn't matter how well you did in the class, didn't matter how hard you studied, if you were a Christian outspoken in his class, you got a C. And you should know that's the only C I ever received in college. I never got any A's or B's either, but uh, no, that's, that's actually not true. It might be speaking up at a dinner party when you're the only believer and someone brings up how narrow-minded Christians are these days. Don't be ashamed to stand up and say, you know, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. He's my Lord and Savior. Do it graciously. Be kind. Don't be weird but don't stay silent. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Next, Paul says, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. I mean, sometimes we're not so much embarrassed by Jesus, but we're embarrassed by his servants. Paul was about to be executed as a criminal. It would be easy to be embarrassed by that. Have you ever been tempted to disassociate from a fellow believer because you're ashamed of them? You don't want to be associated with them? I'm not one of those. Maybe there's an outspoken believer in your workplace. Maybe you're sitting around with a group of people at lunch and someone brings up his name. Someone else rolls their eyes. And someone else mutters under their breath, Jesus freak. And you're sitting there and you're wondering what to do. Don't be ashamed to stand up and say, you know what? I'm a believer too. None of us are perfect, but we have a perfect Savior, and His name is Jesus. And then there's another thing Paul says we shouldn't be ashamed of. Paul doesn't want Timothy 
to be ashamed of the gospel. He says, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, you might wonder, well, why would we be ashamed of the gospel today? We know that the attitude today is, listen, believe whatever you want. You know, the idea today is, listen, if it works for you, whatever you believe, if it really works for you, who am I to say that that's wrong? If it works for you, that's cool. Then do it, because that's really what matters, if it works for you, right? But as soon as we say, listen, this gospel, this Jesus is not just for me, it's for you. As soon as we say this Jesus, this gospel is not just a way that works for me, it's the way. In fact, it's the only way. Then we're viewed as intolerant. And that can be embarrassing. Notice what Paul goes on to say God has accomplished through the gospel. And as I read this, I want you to think, why in the world would I be ashamed of this? Look at verse 9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. There it is again. Because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Paul is basically saying to us, why in the world would you be embarrassed by that? He saved us. He saved us. The gospel is about salvation. We have been saved, rescued from the penalty of, of sin, which is eternal death. We have been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's put our sins away from us. But the gospel, hey, get this, it's about more than just forgiveness. Paul says the God who saved us also, what? Called us to a holy life. God is holy. And when he calls you and me, he calls us to become more and more holy. But that's not all. He also says through the gospel, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light God didn't just, didn't just eliminate death. God put it out of commission. He destroyed it. Spiritually, we are no longer dead, but alive. Physically, though we may die, we are immediately ushered into immortality. I was speaking just a few weeks ago to a brother who was suffering from cancer and dealing with the reality of his own mortality, just about 65 years old. And he said to me, he said, Mark, everything depends on the resurrection. He said, if that really happened, I have hope. Well, that brother died three days ago. And yes, we grieve but we do not grieve as those without hope. Because Jesus destroyed death. 
And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's what God accomplished through the gospel. Why would I ever be ashamed of that? I mean, I think one of the answers to that question might be found in what Paul says about the way that God accomplished all this. Because look at what he says. He says, listen, this was not accomplished by you. It was not accomplished by your own good works. No, it was because of his own purpose and what? Grace. So we cannot earn this salvation. We have nothing to offer God. Absolutely nothing to gain any credit with God. And you know what? That's offensive to some people. We don't have what it takes. We're sinners to the core. Our most righteous deeds, the best thing you've ever done in the flesh is a filthy rag to God. And so instead of earning this salvation, before we could do anything, he granted to us as a gift from all eternity. Why would I be embarrassed by that? Paul says in verse 12, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. And then Paul makes this great statement of personal trust. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. If you like to memorize Bible verses, memorize verse 12. He says, because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now I want you to notice very carefully what Paul says here. Paul does not say, listen, I know what I have believed. Uh, Listen, Paul knew his theology. Paul knew his doctrine. But that's not what he says. He, He doesn't say, I know how much I have believed. Paul had great faith. But he doesn't say it. He says, listen, I don't even say, I know when I have believed. Though Paul could think back to that wonderful experience on the road to Damascus, right? He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? I know who. I know whom I have believed. So get this now. Paul's confidence is in a person. It's in a person. A faithful God. Paul has entrusted something to him. And he believes he is able to guard and make good on that investment until the day all accounts will be settled. What has he entrusted to God? What has he put on deposit with God? Maybe I should ask you, what have you entrusted to God? What have you put on deposit with God? I believe the answer to that here is that Paul has entrusted his life and his work and his ministry and his time on earth to God. And God will keep that investment safe until he sees Christ. And you know what, folks? This is the secret of living a life free from shame. Remember, that's what we're talking about here. Being unembarrassed of the gospel. The secret is to know whom you have believed. Not just to know about him, but to know him. To know him. Do you know him? To know his faithfulness. To know you can entrust your life to him. To know a day will come when he will make good on that investment, that deposit 
that you have made with him. In a publication that comes out called Market Report, Bill Barnhart once explained the difference between investors and traders in the stock market. A trader is one who makes decisions minute by minute in hope of shaving off profits in fractions of a dollar. Traders are wheeler dealers. They buy, they sell, all for short-term profits. They don't necessarily have any confidence or any investment, if you will, in the companies themselves that they buy stock in. That's a trader. On the other hand, an investor buys or sells a stock based on hard research about the company. The investor is in it for the long haul. They commit their money to a stock, believing over a period of years it will steadily grow in value. They're not flustered by the ups and downs in the market because they believe in the long-term quality of the company. So let me ask you a question. Are you an investor or a trader in the kingdom? Are you an investor or a trader? Do you believe in the long-term quality of the one you've invested in? And although you may not see the profits today or even tomorrow, you believe he is able to guard that which you have put on deposit with him. Paul knew his investment was good. Paul would not be deterred by a few ups and downs in the market. How about us? Are we just out to improve our lot in this world? And when hardship comes, we sell out? Or will we stay invested no matter what happens, knowing that eternal dividends await us? Because this gospel is important, Paul gives Timothy a final charge in verses 13 and 14. What you have heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now there are two commands here. Timothy is to keep the pattern of sound teaching and guard the good deposit. Now by the way, this word guard is the same word Paul used up in verse 12. So the idea is we make a deposit with God and he is able to guard it. But here, now listen, God makes a deposit with us and we are called to guard it. So guard, guarding is something God does with our investment and it's something we do with his investment. It's a good deposit. It's a good deposit. And what Paul is talking about here is protecting and guarding and keeping the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is difficult. It's difficult in all world. It was difficult in Timothy's world, especially when you're a timid guy like Timothy was. But there's some encouragement here. And I don't want you to miss this. There's a thread that I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's been woven through this entire section. And it's really on how the Holy Spirit of God gives us the power to do this. 
And since today is Pentecost Sunday, I think it's good to remember. It started in verse 7. Look back up at verse 7. For the Spirit, the Spirit God gives us, that's the Holy Spirit of God, does not make us timid. The thread continues in verse 8. For the Spirit, or, or excuse me, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. By the power of God. Did you notice that? You can't do it by your own power. It's only by His power at work in your life. Finally, the thread stops here in verse 14. How can we guard the gospel? Paul says, guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. No, Timothy. No, 21st century Christian. You cannot do this on your own. You can't. You don't have what it takes, but you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, strengthening you, giving you wisdom, giving you courage, and He's enough. I don't think it would be right for me to end this message today and not mention that like Paul, there are many men and women today who are enduring imprisonment and even death because they are investors and not traders. And because they are committed to running the race and committed to passing the baton to someone else, no matter what. And I hope we're reminded to pray for them. One such person was 26-year-old Kayla Mueller. Uh, Maybe you heard about her and her story. She was captured by ISIS. And on February 10th, 2015, U.S. officials confirmed that Muslim extremists had murdered her in captivity. In the spring of 2014, as a captor, she wrote to her family. Uh, The letter begins with her assurance that she had been treated well. She goes on to apologize to them for suffering, for the suffering that she's put them through because of her captivity. Then she says this. She says, I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I've come to a place where, in experience, where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there was no one else. Kayla goes on to relate how by God and by your prayers I have felt tenderly cradled in free fall. I have been shown in darkness light and have learned that even in prison one can be free. I am grateful. I have come to see that there is good in every situation. Sometimes we just have to look for it. And then she concludes, please be patient. Give your pain to God. I know you would want me to remain strong. That is exactly what I am doing. Do not fear for me. Continue to pray as I will. By God's will, we will be together soon. All my everything, Kayla. See, that's someone who knew whom she had believed in. Do you? Do you? Do you believe that he is able to guard that which you have entrusted to him? You have a baton that's been passed to you. Are you running the race? Remember the people who have impacted your life. Rekindle your gift. 
Be willing to suffer for the gospel and hold fast to it by the power of the Holy Spirit. All that's an investment worth making. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for this challenge that echoes through the centuries from over 2,000 years ago to today. Thank you that we today are the church of Jesus Christ. We today are Timothy uh, with, a, with a calling, with a gifting, with a challenge before us to be men and women who run the race well. Father, I pray that every single one of us in this room today might be able to say one day, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit is the one who will allow us and strengthen us and embolden us and give us all that we need to face whatever challenges we're facing today. I know that some today are facing great challenges in their families, in their places of employment, in their neighborhood, in their friendships. Father, strengthen us for what you've called us to do and what you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.